Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis, and we are extremely fortunate today to have an opportunity to sit down with one of my favorite musicians on any instrument, the great Dick Oates. Uh, Dick has been the lead alto saxophonist for the Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, now Vanguard Jazz Orchestra for four decades. Uh, he was a member of the critically and popularly acclaimed Flim and the BBs. Uh, he's had an extremely prolific solo career, having recorded seven CDs, 17 CDs as a leader and a co-leader. Uh, he's had hundreds of appearances uh, as a sideman and featured soloists with the likes of James Taylor, Lou Rawls, Luther Vandross, Joe Lovano, uh, Eddie Gomez, Lisa Fisher, Bud Shank, Terrell Stafford, just to name a few. Uh, he is the professor and artistic director of jazz studies at Temple University in Philadelphia, formerly on the faculty at Manhattan School of Music, and has been an artist in residence at the Amsterdam Conservatory for almost two decades now. On a personal note, uh, as I mentioned, to me, he's one of the, the great lead alto players of all time, if not the greatest, and uh, really excited that he's going to be playing lead alto on uh, my Hip Bone Big Band project coming up in about three weeks. So super very lucky to have that happen and we're very lucky today to be featuring him as our artist of the month for march so dick thank you so much for joining us and uh mm -hmm. taking time out of your crazy busy schedule thanks for having me mike i know i'm one of the few reed players on this show and i i'm amazed and very uh, appreciative <laughs> well thank you <laughs> it's uh, totally our pleasure and I, I should mention you're absolutely right we typically uh focus on brass and the folks who've had a big impact on the brass world but um, Dick, I think you've actually had a huge impact on, on lead players on any instrument, even the Nick Marshall, one of my favorite lead trumpet players anywhere in the world. He, he credits you as one of the biggest influences oh, on, on his yeah. lead playing. So we'll, we'll definitely talk a little bit about how you look at uh, lead players from a brass perspective as well. But why don't we start, uh, you know, I know you grew up in Iowa and your dad is a jazz musician and a, a band director. Maybe you could tell us uh, some of your memories of, uh, of that time in your life. Well, when my... Uh... My father was from Iowa, and after World War II, he came back, and he had tuberculosis, so he couldn't really play the alto anymore for maybe about five years. So he was in the, the vet's hospital, and he was there for about three and a half years. And uh, so he, he started to learn how to write music and, and uh, repair instruments. So he figured he had to have something uh, together when he got out. And so he got out, and he opened up kind of a repair shop that was close to Drake University. And he started a lot of bands working in, in Iowa and uh, then decided to get married and have kids. And then all of a sudden it wasn't lucrative enough mm. to just have that kind of business. And he wanted more consistency. So he uh, went back to school, got, uh, and uh, he had a business degree before the war, but then he, he got a, an education degree and uh, in music and uh, started teaching about in a small little farm town about 40 miles uh, west of uh, Des Moines called Earlham. And that's when he started at kind of a jazz programs and he started at that school and then kind of went around the state for the next uh, 20 years, wow. 25 years, just introducing jazz programs to uh, to interested uh, band directors that were just used to having concert bands and wind ensembles and orchestras. And so uh, he would always bring my brother and I, my brother's Jim, he's a trumpet player, and, and we'd always go around and uh, do clinics with him. And that's where I was first kind of introduced to uh, 
his world of education and also his dedication to uh, to music, which was uh, very inspiring. So that's what kind of kept me, uh, uh, I think, through all my years of seeing his inspiration through what he did, and uh, and to see that uh, my brother and my sister and sisters and uh, uh, my entire family was pretty musical. So it was a, a rare treat to have uh, such an amazing uh, family to learn from and to uh, complain about if we're playing <laughs> the wrong notes. And, you know, everybody, you know, kept us in check. And uh, so late 50s and during the 60s, it was a pretty uh, an adventurous time for jazz uh, programs and in, in, in the United States, it was an amazing uh, uh, industrial stage, <laughs> I should say, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Of that music, and it was incredible how much my dad contributed. And now when I go back there and I see the thousands of bands that are from a lot of his uh, uh, inspiration, it's really encouraging to me to see that, yeah, you can make a, a statement, you know. Yeah, oh, that's really awesome. Man, I, I, I knew that your dad was an an important guy in the in the region and jazz education in general, but uh, sounds like a, a, a real pioneer in that in the jazz hey, education yeah. movement. Well, and, you know, he he loved he loved to swing, and he loved blend, mm -hmm. and it didn't matter if he had a uh, a fantastic trumpet section or a bone section. He know how to make what little he had work incredibly mm -hmm. well. So it was a pretty uh, amazing gift. Yeah, it's very really encouraging. You know, even on his his deathbed, he still had students like they were 65 years old. Said, Jack, that was the best time of my life, you know, <laughs> experiencing music that I, you know, he's a, went into farming or whatever and would probably never touch the trombone again. Mm -hmm. But he remembered that time. Wow. You know. What a cool influence on your life. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, you mentioned Drake University, and uh, maybe you could talk about your time there. And then I, I believe you went to Minneapolis and spent some time there early in your professional career. Maybe you could yeah, talk well, my, about that. Yeah, so, my brother was going to Drake, and uh, my father had gone to Drake. And uh, and uh, my grades in high school barely got me into Drake. <laughs> and uh, I... Uh, was more interested actually in playing than I was in going to school. I tried it and uh, I thought it was a it was a great school, and uh, but it was just not the right timing for me. I couldn't do this at the same time, you know. <laughs> I couldn't play and study at the same time, so I had I had to figure out a, another alternative. And actually, a guy named uh, by the name of Jack Gillespie, who was used to work in my father's bands in the fifties in Iowa, uh, had heard me. And he was a contractor in Minneapolis. And he asked me, hey, how would you like to come up and, and uh, do some work up here? He said, I think I can find you a lot of work. And I said, well, that sounds a lot better than, you know, me going into the service. Because <laughs> that was my other alternative, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so I uh, decided to uh, try it. And uh, the funny thing was, I, you know, I asked my dad for... You know, I needed a couple hundred dollars to take my 55 Pontiac and myself up, you know. He says, well, I don't think you should leave school, you know. You need something to fall back on. And, you know, it did it did all right by me. And, you know, you should really, you know, watch yourself, you know. And I said, Dad, I don't think it's for me, though. He says, well, it was good enough for me. What's, why is it? <laughs> I said, well, I don't want to really go down there. But I said, you know, I, 
It was great for you, and you have awful big shoes for me to follow, you know. But actually, I think it was because he's from the Depression. He was very cheap, tight-fisted. Sure. And he yeah. didn't want to loan me $200. <laughs> so, because he figured, oh, I, he's going to be asking me a week later next, for another Yeah, the next installment. So anyway, I, I took the $200 and went up there, and my it was in a snowstorm. I got up there, and my, I, I met Jack Gillespie at some corporate center, and he says, you got two weeks at this place called Diamond Gyms, which is kind of a gentleman's mm -hmm. club, you know, and... Uh, Girls are swinging from the rafters and all that. You're backing up two comedians. So, and you have to play a little yakety sax too. And I said, oh, well, okay, I'll try. I didn't, I didn't know if I could do it, but I, I went there and that's where I met some, I met a, a lot of great players. And that, it was a quintet and uh, Steve Wright was a great trumpet player from Minnesota. And, and uh, he kind of actually helped me and took me under his wings a little bit. And I had two weeks there, and then I had two nights off in six months. Wow, that's and awesome. And within one year, I made was making more money than my father ever did teaching. <laughs> so it was funny. A solid two hundred dollar investment well, was, on his part. Right? <laughs> it was funny how he turned it around. And says, you know, I think you're doing really good up there. You know, you know, you don't have to go back to school. I think you're all right. I think you'll be okay. <laughs> so, but you know, it's funny. I always really did want to go back. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you get so busy, it's hard to just change gears. And uh, I was very busy up there. At that time, you know, like I was talking to Ken about, it's like a lot of the guys are already on some of the bands, like Woody's band and Buddy's band. And it left a, uh, some guys went out to Vegas or some guys went to different. And so there was all this work up there for young guys. Wow, that's cool. And so that's when I, I just started that's why I was starting to learn how to sight read better, double, learn tunes. Just it wasn't about for me being a, a jazz player as much as just making a living. So I wasn't dependent on my father's <laughs> uh, small dole, I should say. <laughs> and so I, I really uh, had an amazing education up there. Mm. It was really like some of the best players I could have ever played with, guys that nobody would ever hear about. Lead alto players that were incredible, guys that knew thousands of tunes and told me how to learn them. This is the tunes that you should really focus on and, and what composers and what eras. And, you know, I used to go on club dates and uh, they'd ask me, well, do you know uh, it's you or no one? I said, well, no. Well, if you can use your ear, you'll get through it. You have good ears. So I get through it. But if I came back the following week, and they called it your it you or no one and I didn't know it. It was cool. They just wouldn't hire you again. <laughs> so I mean that's kind of was the rule. You know, it's like wasn't they were gonna chastise you and make you say, Hey, what are you doing? Nah, they just wouldn't it was all yeah. about work. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Good good uh, real life education, right? Like it, that's exactly the way it works. You it's know? I got kind of the tail end of that, you know, with very seasoned players and that was probably done to them. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And, and so, uh, and uh, it's cool to hear about, you know, there's so many, certainly today too, but there's great players in every city, you know, and you, it's just, it's you, really you, true. You don't, I, you don't necessarily hear about them, but there's like such a, such a wealth of great talent. Out there. I've gone to so many different cities and I've heard so many incredible players that just decided that uh, they felt that their art was better suited and better for them at that particular environment. And man, I was like, 
all for that. I was so, you know, it's amazing. It's incredible players everywhere. It's not just the cities. It's not just New York or L.A. or, you know, Chicago or. Right. It's yeah. everywhere. Yeah, you know? no question. Well, speaking of New York, in uh, 1977, you made the, the all-important move to uh, New York City. And uh, um, maybe you could take us through that time in your career. And also, I know that I know the association with that, Jones and Mel Lewis, that, that's such an important pivotal part of your career, but I know that started very early on for you, if I'm not mistaken, right? Or that helped yeah. you make the move? Well, I'd been, you know, I'd been playing Thad's music since the uh, late 60s, early 70s, but I'd, it was always one of these, wow, did he really mean that? <laughs> you know, my ears were just like so square. And I was just like harmonically, I needed to really grow. And I thought, uh, I was on the road with this band now, Wayne Cocker and the CC Riders for about a year. My brother got me on the band. He, my brother was with Bill Chase's band in the oh, wow. early 70s. Yeah. And he was hanging out with Wayne Cochran's band. And they just, their alto player just had left and they said, wow, we're looking for an alto player. So, well, my brother can do it. So uh, going on the road for that year, kind of, after about 11 months, I said, I really want to move to New York. I really want to experience uh, what it's like in a, in a big environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I needed to learn so much more. You know, I, mean, I didn't want to stop here. I didn't want to stop where I was at. I wanted mm -hmm. to keep growing. I wanted to keep going to school. And Minnesota was great, and so was uh, the band I was with. But I wanted to uh, push myself a little harder to see if I could catch some of those dreams you have as a kid when you're hearing Johnny Hodges or, you know, Basie's band or you're hearing these great bands. And I said, wow, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to get on and breathe all that diesel fumes on those big buses, and, <laughs> you know. But those early inspirations, you know, that, that I had had, I, I really wanted to pursue it more and uh, take... Uh, jazz a little bit more seriously. I played a lot of different styles of music and uh, it was great and I learned a lot, but I, now I wanted to challenge myself on a, another level. So I had to make some money, so I had to go back after that year. I went back to Minnesota for two years, 1975, 76, and half of 77, mm -hmm. to save up about $5,000 because I figured, well, at least that'll make, give me six months in, mm -hmm. in New York. And so, after I made the $5,000 at Valley Fair, it was called, it was a new amusement park. I was playing there with Bob Correa, I don't know, and we had just talked about Bob. And yeah, center player from uh, Buddy's Band. From right? Buddy's Band, yeah. and Bob, it was great, it was a great hang, and, and uh, I got, you know, to play with guys like him and uh, Brian Gribna and the Petersons, and uh, it was such an amazing uh, pockets of incredible players and uh, so I saved up all this money and by the time I saved it up I developed an ulcer because the music was so lame <laughs> oh, and I was so dedicated <laughs> to make all that money and do as many shows as I could to get out of there so I had to postpone my uh, thing from uh, late 76 to the, maybe the spring of 77 so what happened was I uh, my roommate uh, at the time was a very good young saxophone player, player named, by the name of Randy Pink, and he was playing lead alto in the University of Minnesota 
jazz band. Mm -hmm. And they had Dad Jones come out uh, as a guest artist that year. And so Randy came home and said, oh, oh, Dad Jones is so happy. He's so amazing. Everything he says is so poignant and so uh, instructional. And uh, his music is just so difficult, but so challenging, so great. And uh, he asked me, he said, he asked me if I'd like to go out and play with his band in New York. I said, great, are you going to do it? He said, no. I told him I wasn't good enough, but my roommate, which is you, <laughs> is good enough. And since you had the money and you haven't gone out there yet, and you're just spinning your wheels here, I told him about you. I said, Randy, come on. He's probably just telling you, you know, he's just trying to give you some ball. He's probably not. He says, well, I got his number. He says, that's probably not even his number. <laughs> And so anyway, in Minnesota, they always made fun of people from Iowa. And they definitely did that. They could pull my leg. I'd fall hook, line, and sinker into everything that they said, you know. So I figured, well, this is another joke. So it says, here's the number Oates, call. So I said, I was getting ready for all this laughter. In the, so I called up and I called the number. And it was a 201. And I said, hello. Uh, and he goes, yes, a very low voice. I said, I, I'm supposed to ask, is this Thad Jones? He goes, well, yes, it is. Who is this? I said, really? He says, who are you? I says, oh, my name is Dick Oates. He says, Randy told me all about you. When can you come out? And I went, two weeks. And so I packed everything, sent it back to Iowa. I flew out. He said, call me when you get to the airport. So I got to LaGuardia, and I called him, and it was a Monday. He says, you're playing tonight. You have your saxophone, wow. your tenor, and your flute and your clarinet. And so I said, yes. He says, well, just take the taxi to the Vanguard. Here's the address. So I got there. I got there early, and I knocked on the door, and this bartender, Mike, pretty salty guy at the time, lets me in and says, look, put that ugly suitcase in the liquor cabinet. And just go in the kitchen and just stay out of my way. So I was in there and I'm just kind of like standing there like an Iowa hayseed. And uh, and there was this guy that I was sitting in there and he was just jeans and, a, you know, kind of a tie-dyed shirt. And he was just kind of like, and uh, he started looking at me and I'm kind of getting nervous because I don't know who he is. And I thought, I just kind of assumed that he might be the janitor or something like that. He says, who are you? I says, oh, my name is Dick Oates. So I went to shake his hand. He wouldn't shake my hand. He says, says, what do you think you're doing here? He says, oh, I want to play with Thad Jones and Mel Lewis tonight. He goes, who says? <laughs> I said, well, uh, Thad Jones said. He says, what's your name again? And I told him Dick Oates. And he says, never heard of you. Who have you played with? Well, I just came from Minnesota. He says, I don't know anybody. From Minnesota. He says, says uh, you look pretty young. You know, have you ever read music before? He says, yeah, I've done a little. He says, what do you mean a little? Have you either done, you can read or you can't. And he just started grilling me. And I'm going, wow, these New Yorkers are so intense. <laughs> he says, can you play solos? Can you double? Can you blend? 
You know, I don't even know you. I've never heard of you. You're going to come into this band, and this is the number one band in New York, and you think you're going to come in here and just play this music? And then I was looking at him, and right before I was about ready to say, well, just who in the hell are you? <laughs> Dad comes in and says, are you Dick Oates? I said, yeah. Well, this is Mel Lewis. <laughs> and I went, oh, man, it's so That's good. Cool. I was so glad I didn't. So my first night in New York, I got to play with Jerry Dodgen and Pepper Adams and Earl Gardner was playing lead. John Mosca was playing trombone. Harold Danko, Rufus Reed, Ed Hickis, Rich Perry. Uh, what a story. Billy Campbell. <laughs> I mean, it was just, a, I was like, wow. What an experience. That's incredible. And I, so I played the night and I finally got a solo. And... You know, it was funny because Mel didn't really say much, but as soon as I got done playing, it's just that Mel was a very protective musician. Yeah. And he, you know, he didn't like guys that bullshitted and yeah. would say something that couldn't back it up. Yeah. He'd heard a lot of that in his career, and he just was very, you know, not in this band, you know, you got to respect the music and stuff like that. And so I could see it. And that night, Dad said, you want to come back next week? He said, yeah. I says, well, don't bring your horn because I'm hearing other people, but come come around and hang out. So I came back the following week. I heard the whole night. And I was hanging in the back with Earl Gardner at the time having a beer. And he comes up to Earl Gardner, and Earl at that time was like over 400 pounds. He was mm, a big right, guy, right. you know. And he says, Big Bird, because that's what we all nicknamed him. He says, do you think I should give this guy a job? And he says, no, Dad. He's too skinny. He'll die on the he's he'll die on the road. He'll starve to death. And so then Pat said, "Well, you got a passport? Do you want to go on the road? Uh, you want to go to Europe?" And uh, and I didn't even know what a passport was. How, you know? So that's kind of started my my New York introduction. Wow, that is awesome. So you uh, you obviously started on the tenor chair, and then the tenor chair. Yeah. Did, well, did, you know they you know. It always it was like this, Mike. I didn't care what horn I played. I just needed to get good on everything I did. So if I could play tenor and play more solos and learn, I didn't care. I could be anything. I needed to learn how to play. So it could be on tenor, alto, soprano. I, I can <laughs> drew the line to baritone. It was a little bit too big. <laughs> but I just wanted to learn how to, to blow and so everybody would seem to hire more tenor players at the time to get that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. So, Well, that's certainly that, uh, that versatility has paid tremendous dividends throughout your career, obviously on that yeah. nose band, but uh, in many other uh, well, situations. Well, Sonny Stitt was my hero, mm. and he could play great alto and great tenor. And my father always said, look, you got to be able to play in both if you want to make a living. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to play in the section. I could learn how to play lead different styles, and it was due to those two instruments, and I was happy I, I did it. Yeah, awesome. So how did the uh, the transition over to the lead alto chair uh, take well, place? Well, a year later, uh, well, that later that summer, Pepper Adams went up to Thad Mill and said, look, I'm leaving after this tour. And uh, so Ed Hickes said, well, I would love to move to the baritone, more, more solos to play, and I, I like the baritone. Mm -hmm. So... Mel came up to me and said, look, Oates, uh, Larry Snyder, I was subbing for Larry Snyder, who was with Horace Elber, and he said, Oates, Larry's coming back, and so you can always come back and sub. 
It's just too bad you don't play alto. And I said, what? He says, too bad you don't play alto because we're looking, because uh, Ed Hickus is moving to baritone, Pepper's leaving, uh, and we need a second alto player. So he said, well, Mel, I'm really an alto player. He goes, really? Well, I'll tilt that. And two hours later, I had the second alto. Of course, I would have told him a complete lie <laughs> yeah, just to right, keep the gig. But then a year later, Jerry, I was leaving, and Thad came up to me. He says, uh, Oates, you're going to play lead. And I said, I don't know. Thad, is it okay if I just stay on second alto? Because I'm learning so much, you know. He says, no, you have no choice. It's lead or nothing. So that's, I didn't want the responsibility. Because mm -hmm. I knew how much consistency you needed. I knew the intonation had to be more on check. And, and I just didn't want to play that strong. I was getting used to, you know, playing under Jerry. And it felt so great because he was such an amazing uh, player, lead alto player. And just, just a hero of mine. Sure. I didn't well, want to follow those shoes. <laughs> well, you certainly did. And uh, obviously, Thad and Mel both heard the greatness in your playing and realized that uh, you were going to be able to rise to the occasion. Uh, and you clearly have done that for many, many decades now. Uh, I think they, they lit a fire in me and, and inspired me and very, always very encouraging. Mm. Those two guys really, I mean, uh, were totally uh, wonderful at... Uh, had given us all an opportunity, mm -hmm. you know, and I wouldn't, my money would have ran out a long time ago had it not been for Thad Jones. Mm -hmm. I don't, to this day, I don't know why that guy ever took a chance. He didn't know me from Adam. Yeah. But that's the kind of guy he was. He took chances when he wrote music. He took chances hiring the band. He took chances all the time when he soloed. And uh, that, to me, was as much a part of the band and his history was that just risk-taking all the time. And it was just, uh, and I figured that if they could take a risk of me, I could certainly start taking risks, being a better soloist and learning more of the uh, essence of what I should be working on. And I, I thought I'd, I had something together out in Minnesota, but I was totally clueless <laughs> you know well, i'm sure it wasn't totally clueless well you making, were, you the, were band, in the, ballpark, that's making sure. the band was easy it was keeping the gig that got to be like oh <laughs> now that i've bullshitted my way into this now how can i you know keep this gig in an earnest fashion so. yeah well you've certainly done that that's for sure i was wondering if you know it's probably a bit of a sensitive topic but you know thad leaving the band and and um i know that was done in somewhat of a dramatic fashion but maybe you could talk about you know, what the mood was like for the band and for you guys. And I mean, it had to have been a tremendous blow for, for everybody. And, and I was curious as to your memories of that time. Well, that had been going a lot over there to work with uh, some of the radio bands. And, uh, you know, getting paid mm -hmm. as a writer uh, and having a potpourri and a, a lot of instruments to work with. It was, it was always a dream of every writer. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were very supportive of him. And we had heard rumors, uh, but Mel dismissed him. Oh no, he just goes over there and and uh, and uh, does this, but he'll always come back. And you know, so but we had started to hear stronger rumors, and we were doing a a three and a half month tour at that point in Europe, and you know we were in Copenhagen. We're all over Europe, and 
we it was kind of a young band it was a new band at that last point in 78 it was a fall of 78 and uh dad didn't say anything to mel and and i i just assumed that well they have something like that whatever mm -hmm. you know and uh maybe just gonna spend more time over there but uh nobody really knew and i i even wonder if that really knew until he made the decision uh you know he was involved with a uh, person that he loved over there and uh um he loved the area they were huge amounts of respect with that everywhere but especially there mm -hmm. and so it was a, an opportunity and uh when it kind of came down it was like uh uh, sad to say the least, because that was one of Thad Mill's best financial years. Oh, wow. Working, you know, the Basie Band and the Ellington Band were all minimizing a little bit as far as the work, and, and uh, th that was the band, you know, yeah, yeah. the legacy, you know, that was to take, you know, us into the the next future to me of that and and we got to a place in Stuttgart and, and there was some kind of an argument and and uh, Thad decided not to sit out a couple sets and at the end of the uh, the night you know I mean it was a young band and we'd all tried hard, very hard to play his, his music and it was difficult and some of the guys uh, worked harder than others and I think that was a little upset that night and and I went up to talk to him and I asked him I said was it you know anything I could he said did I say it was about you I said hmm I didn't know how to ha answer that question so I went and got a couple of vodkas and a beer and <laughs> went back to him and said that I just I've heard rumors and whatever you do I want to wish you the the best uh, life possible over here you know and then he opened up. He started telling me, "Oh man, I, I can write for French horns. I can write for strings. I can." They're giving me all this opportunity for bigger percussion groups, and and he just wanted to expand. I think he just, you know, he's a risk taker. Yeah. You know, and he wanted to try something new. He was a real pioneer and adventurist, and that was always the spirit. And that every time he led the band, you never know what was what was going to transpire. You know, and he still wanted to keep that spirit and I think that it was the right move that he mm -hmm. felt that was necessary for him and it was it was hard for Mel because Mel felt a little blindsided and but after that uh, you know Mel was luckily we had the gig at the Vanguard to mm -hmm. keep us everybody thought the band split up but you know Mel we, our first tour after that was with Buddy DeFranco, and then, and then Mel says, "Oh, wow, what are we getting?" I said, "Well, let's listen to some of your records that you've been on." Because every time I went over to Mel's, we listened to hundreds of recordings, you know. And Mel loved to talk, <laughs> talk, talk, talk. <laughs> I mean, the only way you could get Mel to stop talking is to tell him that you had to go to the bathroom. That's the only thing he respected. <laughs> so, and. And so we uh, we talked, and I said, 
Mel, listen to all these great writers that you've worked with. Terry Gibbs to Kenton's band to Brookmeyer and Holman and all these great Let's call up Brookmeyer or Holman or one of these guys. And we started talking to him. We got to start bringing in new music. And, uh, and we talked for hours about that. And then when I was leaving, Mel says, you know, oh, I got a great idea. I want to call up Brookmeyer. I'm going to call up. <laughs> I said, great. Let's go, Mel. Let's, let's go. So we were getting writers like Mincer and Maria Schneider was bringing stuff in and Fedchuk and, and just uh, Bill Finnegan and, of course, Brookmeyer bringing in such amazing stuff and, and Holman. So I was, we were like kids in a candy store playing that music. I was just like, wow. <laughs> you know, it was just like playing Thad Jones's music when Thad was there. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, they're literally two, a foot in front of me, and they're telling me, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? I felt like, man, this is it. This is, this is what I moved to New York for. I remember you guys had the, uh, and it's, it's so cool to, to hear the, uh, the, the lineage of how that actually took place, that uh, the influence that you had on the uh, situation is fantastic. I remember uh, being in college and getting the, uh, I think it was called Bob Brookmeyer Composer Arranger, uh, featuring that uh, Mel Lewis orchestra. Yeah, that was and, a great part. And you played the most unbelievable solo on Skylark that it still kills me whenever I, it's oh, just yeah. like, just absolutely spectacular. But that, I remember hearing that record and th- it really felt like the band had shifted and come into its own identity post Thad. I think um, so. I think that that's very uh, astute. I think that that was the uh, thing that really bridged, uh, gave Mel a bridge. Mm-hmm to say, this is the Mel Lewis Orchestra now. And uh, uh, Brookmeyer was so patient, so amazing. And coming back from LA uh, and uh, leaving some of his demons behind and just was writing prolifically, just kept coming out with stuff that we were going like, what? And when he brought in (laughs) Skylark for the first time, I was just like, what is this major thirds going in half steps? What am I going to do with this? I go like, <laughs> I'm just still trying to get the blues together. And so I said, Bob, what do you think? He says, Oates, just give us some time. Take some chances. Here's some different people. He says, I know you can do it. And so when we recorded it, I was probably the most nervous I had ever been. Really? Lee wow. Conus was there, Clark Terry was there, all these amazing people. It was live at live to two track at the Vanguard and and I what I envisioned was the alto was this small and I was ten feet tall. <laughs> so my sound wouldn't get too, you know, small or tense or something like that. So but anyway, that was like to me uh, an arrangement that I knew then that it was composers and arrangers like that that truly defined great uh, music and uh, and great bands and the solos that got that came from those bands. Mm-hmm. You know, from uh, Duke's band, you know, to Woody's band. Every there were so many great solos that came out from some of those charts that 
arrangements or compositions. Mm -hmm. And so that being said, I just, I was so humbled by Brookmeyer writing me that. I just said, I really got to go to school and try to figure <laughs> out what am I going to go to on ding, dong, ding? It's one chord. You know, it's one sound. <laughs> right. So I had to grow. I had to keep, and they kept me growing. And then, you know, the cats that, other cats that he would write for, I just like, wow. I just kept, that's what kept inspiring me to, and, and it's the same way with everybody in the band. Yeah. Playing better, blending better, listening harder. Stuff yeah. that, you know, as young people we go to a certain extent, but hey, the level keeps going up and up and up. And you're going to just sit back and play the same way you did when you're 25, 30? No, it's yeah. going to get, the bar is going to keep raising. And that, that's why I love that band because every time I think, well, maybe I'm getting too, maybe I played long enough. No, I keep getting my ass kicked. <laughs> Either yeah. from the music or from guys like, you know, Dodgen or Lovano or Pepper Adams or Rich Perry or, or uh, Steve Coleman or Kenny Garrett or, you know, Billy Drews. Yeah, Ralph Malama. I mean, just like, it's an embarrassment of riches for me. I mean, I never had the college, but that was like, every Monday was like going to church and getting my ass kicked at the same time. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, in addition to that solo, I know for me, when I heard you playing lead alto on that particular recording, I was blown away. I thought, this is the greatest lead alto playing I've ever heard. Um, as a young person, I've, I still think that now, uh, many, many decades later. Maybe you could talk a little bit about you know, I know you mentioned the influence maybe that Jerry had on your lead playing, listening to him, but what, how do you approach, you know, even whether it's then or now, your approach to lead alto playing? And I'm curious, you know, from a brass perspective, what is it that you key off of in terms of lead trombone or lead trumpet and maybe what you look for in those, the qualities that you look for in, in good lead trumpet playing, good lead trombone playing? And also, if not to get the, too wide with the question, but how you approach your own section in terms of what you look for mm -hmm. and having the... Because the, that's the other thing about your lead playing. It seems to galvanize the whole section. It just feels like the section is... Well, is I, like, I like to have a section that hears uh, the same kind of time mm -hmm. you know, on different types of arrangements. Versatile with their time. That can be versatile with their articulation and... Uh, give me a chance to uh, not work as hard trying to put it forth. I'd rather have uh, me as kind of just like literally icing on the cake with the meat and potatoes are really coming from the section itself. Mm -hmm. I feel that if I can have that, then I can float more. I can make uh, adjustments towards uh, putting different phrasing things on top and I don't have to work so hard. Uh, also, I like to dig in, and I like to have a baritone player that anchors that. I like to have a second alto player that has a darker sound than mine. Hmm. Uh, so I don't have to feel it's the same sound. I need that depth. And the second alto player is the hardest section of the book, and that's the one, to me, that uh, transcends the communication throughout. Hmm. I like to have one light tenor sound and one dark tenor sound. I like different improvisers. I don't like to 
to have the same kind of improvisers because then you'll get the same kind of uh, solos over and over. Mm -hmm. So I like to pick people with different voices and uh, people that have a lot of reference towards this section. You can play the, be the greatest soloist in the world, but unless you're listening, not just to me, but to the lead trumpet and to the ride cymbal and the drums, mm -hmm. then that's a pretty big hole. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get that, then uh, it's, it's hard for me to, you know, to give them that. They have mm -hmm. to be wanting that. You know, I've had players that say, well, you know, I had one guy come in with, remember those shields that came in the bell of the, well, I can't hear myself. I said, wait. I said, but now all I can hear is you. <laughs> said, but, I said, if you can't hear yourself, play softer mm -hmm. and try to blend mm -hmm. with the lead trumpet player. You don't need to hear yourself all the time. You have to fit in. And there's so many, that's the thing about great music, is it really makes your ears, as you know, it makes your ears have to be versatile. One minute you're playing soprano with trumpets and mutes, and that's dangerous. <laughs> Next minute you, you pick up a flute and it's a low D or something, and you have to play that with harmon mutes or with flugelhorns or something like that. And and the next minute you're playing a sax solo that, you know, and so I always, from all the gigs that I did, it's not just jazz gigs, from all the gigs that we've done, playing a variety of different work, from cabaret shows and from sports shows and big bands that, that uh, aren't necessarily jazz band, but mm -hmm. ones that I just, I learned a lot of what to do, what not to do. And if I was doing this, I wouldn't want to play like that. And so I went, you know, so all that kind of transcended. And for me, what's probably defined my lead alto as much as anything was Earl Gardner, mm. you know? His time, his sound, uh, he just had huge arms, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And now Nick Marcion is the same way. I just, I, uh, I learned so much from uh, the lead trumpet player. And you know, when that left, kind of the core with me and Mosca and uh, Earl Gardner and Mel and McNeely, mm -hmm. we, were, we were there. And so it was easier for Mel to transcend into uh, his band, because mm -hmm. we'd all played together. We all had a sound together, a rhythmic glue and concept together. So when new guys would come in, they could fit right into the that, that big picture. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what helped us go into the next generation of Mel, mm -hmm. and then it transcended into the Vanguard after that. But really, to me, I mean, not just because this is mainly a brass uh, oriented, uh, you know, program, but it's for me, it's if I can fit into the brass trombone specifically, that brass, that rich sound, and the tenor players and can fit into that rich sound, that's what I want. I don't need reed players sticking out. I want them to blend first and foremost with the brass section. Mm. I don't want an accordion sound. <laughs> I don't need an imbalance. I need a core. And so it's funny, when Mel first told me that we were recording that one of the first digital CDs 
with a lot of Thad's music back in 1979 after Thad split. And I said, now we can't hear the reeds, all these great doubles and so says, Oh, so that's the way it is in a live performance. <laughs> I'm going, ah! But I learned a lot. He says, a lot of it is about how you blend. A lot of it is not hearing your part. A lot of it's not about that digital recording. A lot of it's about the wholesome blend, of the, mm -hmm. the impact that the whole band gets. And I got that from playing with, uh, specifically with Mosca and Earl Gardner. Mm -hmm. you know? Wow. Well, I th hope everybody... Uh... God, I get a ton out of what you just said. It's really insightful. And uh, talk about going to school. There it is. That's, well, it made you know, every band that I went to afterwards a lot more easier to understand. Mm -hmm. So when I was playing with Fattis' band, uh, I said, wow. When I played with Brookmeyer's band over in, in Europe or a lot of the radio bands over there, she said, wow, it makes it so much more entertaining to me. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thanks for all that, Dick. That's really yeah. uh, insightful stuff. Um, I want to just shift gears into uh, many of you probably remember the band Flim and the BBs. I was a massive fan. I got uh, all the DMP records and then uh, the stuff you did with George Massenburg. Maybe you could talk about uh, how that band came into existence. And uh, I was curious as to how that worked out. You were, like I, like I mentioned with Tom Jung, you were with DMP for several records. I still mm -hmm. have them in my CDs collection over there. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how Flim and the BBs came into existence and then I know you guys kind of started with DMP and then it evolved into the work you did with George Massenberg and um, I just really enjoyed the band on so many levels. Obviously quite different music than you were playing with Ed and Mel but uh, yeah. maybe maybe just talk about your time with that group. Well you know when I was with Wayne Cock and the CC Riders and I went back for the two years be to make some money before mm -hmm. I had that's when I always knew uh, Billy Barber and Bill Berg and Jimmy Johnson when I first moved up there. We were all close in age. Jimmy was the youngest, of course, but very versatile. These guys, mm -hmm. Jimmy played great clarinet, and Billy uh, could write great and was just more in the moment kind of a piano player and was just getting into all the synthesizers and of the day. And, and Bill Berg was playing with... Uh, with uh, uh, a great band uh, with Bob Rockwell called New Life, I think. Mm. Uh, anyway, so they had a, a group, and Jimmy's nickname was always Flynn. And they used Bill Barber and Bill Berg, and they just called him Flynn and the BBs. And they'd go around and just do, you know, they were in and out of the studios all day, and they just needed a break. So they'd come up with all these amazing music kind of on the spot. And they started to just get a few sessions together at these clubs and would just be kind of a garage band and go in there and just like you know work out their uh, imagination and their fun and so when I came back they asked me if I'd like to come and sit in a few times and I did and we ended up recording the, the first record that we did was called Flim and the BBs and it was a uh, LP and we were recording direct to disc so you know those the story with that and sure so you have to go 20 minutes straight through, and if you make a mistake, you gotta do the damn <laughs> thing over again. So we did that, and we went 20 minutes straight through, and we finally got through it, and I was in New York at the time, and I was coming back to do it. That gave me a chance to, okay, you can take two weeks before we go to go do that. So I came back, and then I got back, and somebody took the acetator, whatever they call those, 
and they dropped it. So the thing <laughs> broke and shattered. But at the same time, 3M had some experimental tape in the back. And they, they said, well, let's hear that because that might, that might work. And it was the first digital tape. Oh, wow. So they took that tape and put it on the LP. So that was, that's why it's a collector's item. Mm. Uh, it's very rare if you go into the, the high fidelity guys, they'll, you can't find that record because it's wow. it was one of the first digital albums right. ever yeah. made. But then after that, Jung, about a year or two later, Tom wanted to expand. Tom Jung wanted to expand. So he moved to Stanford, Stanford in Connecticut and opened up his new corporation, uh, <laughs> DMP, mm -hmm. Digital Music Products. Or yeah, I think that's what it was, yeah. And so one of the first bands he asked was uh, from the BBs to come and do a, uh, a recording. And so I was in and out of town, and they, they asked me, uh, they had asked me to come in and sit in with them on a couple. It was at the old A&R where the, where the union used to be on, uh, I think the union's still there, but there used to be A&R and &R used to be in, yeah, right, in the building. That and that's where we now. recorded yeah. the first ones right there. Oh, okay, yeah. And... Uh, we went and, re and recorded the uh, thing, and I was on about maybe five of the takes or something. And uh, it was just one day. We just all did it in one day. And I was amazed. These guys sounded tremendous, and it was so, so much fun. Mm -hmm. It was always fun to play with them. And, and uh, we always took time around Thanksgiving to do it because that was the time that they had off. And I unfortunately didn't. I was working Radio City, but... I had the time to take off there to do it. So mm -hmm. we ended up doing uh, the, our first one and uh, called Tricycle for DMP. And uh, it was amazing. It started to sell like incredible because there wasn't any music like that. No Spira Gyra or Yellow Jackets at that time. Uh, it was just one of the first digital. And it was like all the sound guys the buffs that really loved great sound, loved the dynamic levels of that, mm -hmm. of what Jung would do. So it was as much of a feat of what Tom Jung did in, in engineering as the band's dynamics, natural dynamics. Mm -hmm. So we did Tricycle, and that eventually became a gold wow. seller. And then we did uh, Tunnel, and Big Notes, and, and a couple more after that. Then uh, they started... Amazing. I started getting uh, amazing residuals for, for a minute. Mm. You know how short-lived that stuff always is. <laughs> so it was great. I was just like, wow, I couldn't believe it. But it was so funny to have, like I had a dual life with that band because <laughs> nobody knew that, oh, it's, you know, like Lavana would call me from driving back from, uh, from uh, Cleveland. He says, oh, it's, I heard this thing. I know that's your sound. <laughs> the name of the band. What was it? Flim Flam and the Babies? What the hell? And he says, what is that? He says, oh, I didn't say much because I, I kind of kept that identity hidden because I didn't want them to know. Like, oh, is, is he playing jazz or what's he playing there? You know, like, so I love that style and I love playing uh, that adventurous approach to it. Uh, I was lucky, lucky to, enough to expand a little bit on that. I could have taken it more seriously, I guess, but I I really loved playing in that style with that band specifically. 
because mm -hmm. I felt it was so unique and adventurous, and it was uh, just fun. Yeah. You didn't know, we go into it with nothing as far as music, and we just compose it on the spot. Really? Yeah. Oh, we wow. have some ideas, but every record was like that. Oh, well, that we'd all pool in the middle. What are we going to do now? <laughs> Each, it, what started to be one took one day, the next one took two days, and the next CD took three days. The next one took four, and then it kept, you know, because we had, and then a lot of people, why aren't you traveling with this as well? Because Bill Berg was working with Walt Disney as a head animator. Jimmy was then working with James Taylor and doing so much studio work in the West Coast, and Bill Barber was doing a lot of uh, studio work in Manhattan and writing a lot of stuff for uh, soap operas and all kinds of music, and and I was going out with Mel and. Mm -hmm. And Red Rodney and Eddie Gomez, and I, I didn't want to stop that, mm -hmm. you know. Flynn and Beavis was great, but I kind of got myself to playing. I was playing like more than eight bar, 16, two choruses. I was starting to play many, many choruses, <laughs> and, and I, don't, I didn't know how that would fit in if I was on right. the road playing that. Right, right. So... You know, it's interesting because your your sound to me is such an integral part of that. I mean, I can't imagine the group without your sound. I mean, it's such an important... Well, you know, they uh, made me a member, bona fide member, after the first recording, Tricycle. Because Billy, Billy was really for it. And I was going like, well, man, they sound so unique as a trio. But I think they wanted something more voice-like. Mm -hmm. And not just the synths and, and, a, and a, an amazing rhythm section sound. Yeah. And... I think that I, uh, it was a treat because I, I love those guys. I still do this day. They're, they're, they taught me so much and they were so giving and, and so uh, much a part of my development mm -hmm. from my Minnesota days. Yeah. So I, I'll never forget that. It changed the, a lot of the directions away. I even play now in, in intervolically and, and, and leaving certain spaces and it really speaks to how the, the, your versatility to me, like the fact that you can fit so seamlessly in that context, but then of course, you know, whatever you want to do jazz-wise, you can easily Well, it's funny that. because I had, a, I had a, just recently, about a year ago, a friend of mine called me and said, look, I'm, I'm doing this, The View with, uh, oh, uh, this singer that's doing a jazz artist, you know. Mm. And she's, you know, kind of been a pop, more of a Latino singer. She's from Florida, very well known. And uh, she had Dave Cause on her record, mm. and I'm just playing in the back, backup band with, like, with, uh, you know, our friends. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I don't really want to do it because I, I know those shows. They don't pay that much. And there's a lot of sitting around and waiting. Yeah, sure is. Right? But I, I forgot to tell him no, and he says, well, it's tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, oh, I God, okay. So I went and did it, and there was Dave. Dave Cos was doing his thing, and, and and then he said, well, Dave Cos can't make the next one, so can you play in that style? <laughs> I said, well, I've done a little bit of it, you know, in my past. And so it was kind of fun to, you know, show younger people that is. Yeah. There's a lot of versatility in us all. You know? Yeah, well, uh, certainly. You have the grayest hair. I've heard so much versatility from so many people that I emulate for years and years. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Um, 
I just want to shift in and, and we got to get you to the Vanguard tonight. <laughs> so I want to cover just a few more uh, important things. But, you know, I mentioned at the beginning how prolific you are as a solo artist in, in addition to everything else you're doing, which is phenomenal. Um, I was wondering if you could just maybe pick out a couple of your favorite solo projects. I think you were, are you still with Steeplechase uh, these days? Uh, or? Yeah, I'm still with Steeplechase. Uh, to a, uh, I haven't done anything in the last couple of years, but I'm, uh, I've been, uh, the record industry is, CD has changed so drastically, as mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to justify it sometimes. Uh, right, yeah. Uh, but uh, probably one of, you know, I did a, one of my uh, records with Dave Santoro called uh, Meru. It was all on tenor. And I did it for Red Records, which is a, a guy, uh, Sergio Vesci in Italy. Mm. It's called Red Records because it was a communist label. And he's a staunch communist. <laughs> and so he goes, Dick Oates, no alto, only tenor. So I said, well, what the hell? So I was in the mid-90s. I said, oh, I'll break it out again. So I played, that was one of my first uh, breakthrough playing most of my music. I also did some co-leader stuff with Gary Dial in the late sure. 80s. Yeah. It was a chamber group of strings and... and and uh, Jay Anderson and Joey Barron played yeah, great on I it. Have those, uh, so we did that with records, yeah. uh, called Dial and Oats, and the second was called Brassworks, which we used a 12-piece chamber brass section, which was mm -hmm. great. Rich DeRosa did the music there. And then uh, Dial and I, well, this was all on DMP, because mm -hmm. when the BBs left, Dial and I took up the DMP. And so then we did a Cole Porter salute to the verses that Cole Porter wrote. And... Oh. Uh, so then after that, a couple of years went by, and I started to go uh, into more to Europe tour, a lot more over there. And so just started to meet people that, and I, I know, I've i known Nils Winter since I recorded with uh, Red Rodney on that label in the mid-'80s. And I asked Nils if he would do something. He said yes, and he's a great guy to work for and would let me do anything that came to my mind. So he would take any of my lousy charts or anything, and <laughs> he would he would record it. So uh, the first thing I gave him was actually uh, a recording of some standards called uh, Standard Issue Volume One and Volume Two. We just did live with our uh, DAT player and went around all these clubs in New York, Connecticut, and and uh, and uh, New Jersey, and just recorded everything for two years. And he just took the best stuff. And put it oh there. wow, that's great. And then. You know, I started writing a lot more music for that. And probably one of my most favorites still to this day is a thing called All of Three. It was just trio, just bass, drums, and alto. Mm. And a lot of the way I, I like the solo now is having duets within the band. So sometimes, like in All of Three, I just like the duets that I had with the drummer, James Oblon. And Dave Santoro would be the straight guy, and we kind of dance around his, you know his time and, and it just gave me a lot more of stuff to work with and I started to uh, free up a little bit of uh, you know in a big band you're so used to condensing everything and this was such an open palette and it I needed to do a lot more of that and I started to take that a lot more seriously and uh, then started recording more with that and uh, I've had so, so many amazing players on my CDs. I'm, I'm just blessed to have uh, done uh, some writing 
and having them play it. That, mm. was, that was the biggest thrill. And you know how that is, right? Absolutely. When you can yeah. hear great players playing Realizing your music. charts that are challenging and they're, they're doing it and they're working on it. And uh, like Terrell Stafford and Joe Magnarelli and, and, you know, that Scott Winnell playing my music and yeah. recorded with John Mosca. Just that has really made me think more out of the box and, and keep growing. As a as a leader now and uh, and as a composer. Yeah, that's what it's all about. You've I just did a inspiration for all of us. One last CD I did with Gary Dial. It was called. Uh, it was a, a a Walt Whitman. We dedicated the music to Walt Whitman. Uh, the so it was all Walt Whitman's poetry that mm. we put music to, entitled "That Music Always Around Me," and uh, it, uh, that was a real challenge. I never written with write melodies for poetry like that. I was like so intimidated, but uh, I would like to do maybe a few more things like that in the future, but mainly I want to concentrate on expanding the freedom of uh, expression blowing mm -hmm. in smaller confines. Yeah. Well, we we look forward to hearing whatever <laughs> you whatever you decide you're going to uh, uh, whatever direction. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your teaching because you're a world-renowned uh, saxophone teacher and uh, jazz teacher. Uh, you've been on um, uh, the faculty at Temple now for almost a decade and uh, maybe talk about, I know with Terrell Stafford, uh, one of the most amazing musicians ever and, and an incredible educator and what, what you guys have built there. It's really uh, quite the program. Well, it's really Terrell's vision and I'm just so fortunate that he included me in, in his uh, path. Uh, it's been an amazing education as well as a uh, uh, inspiration uh, to see how well he is versed in so many directions of educating young people interested in this pursuit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I I was at Manhattan School of Music for years, and I loved it there. And it's a great program. I, I was able to experience some great students there, mm -hmm. and I learned a lot from. That level, I learned a lot teaching at NYU. I learned a lot going around doing all the college clinics that we do, and, and that over the past what 35 years. And and uh, but it's very rare that I I get to teach with somebody like Terrell Stafford. He's so. Uh, he has so many elements that he could move into and flow in and out of, depending on the situation that needs. He's so versatile, and and everything is so uh, geared to encourage and uh, make the student want to follow their dreams. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I am so amazed at what he's built at Temple. And uh, the faculty that the, that he surrounded himself with is so top-notch. And just being there for my 10 years, it's went from one jazz band to now three, and the amount of small groups is uh, way doubled. And and uh, the money that that we have to work with has grown. We have a dean that's sensational. And the uh, whole thing is built really on Terrell's shoulders and 
And uh, when he invited me to come down and leave a temple, there was no hesitation. Mm. I saw, we had did one uh, thing at uh, the University of North Carolina with Jim Ketch. And that's where we first, I had first heard him with Bobby Watson's band. But when I saw him teach, I said, wow. That was the full thing. And the thing that I love about Terrell is that he covers so many angles. Uh, he's a great composer to me. He's a great trumpet player. He's a great educator. Mm -hmm. And not only that, he can build a program. Uh, he can build from a great program. He can build with nothing. And uh, there's very few people like him. And everywhere I go, uh, I've seen where he's been, and I've seen the aftermath and the spirit behind it. So as well as being a Pied Piper, he's uh, a remarkable musician that that uh, I'm lucky in this lifetime to have an opportunity to have your friends with and colleagues and uh, work with the Vanguard, in the Vanguard band. Yeah, with of course. So many of those players I, I love. Everybody that I've worked with in that band has taught me about education, has taught me about all that. Yeah. You know? But to have a guy, you know, Terrell has a way of piecing it all together. So. Yeah, that's, uh, I had the good fortune of, uh, and I saw you down there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my son and I went down and uh, he was so gracious to give Zach a, a lesson. And uh, I remember seeing Zach's eyes as he walked out of the lesson, just like, that was so inspiring and humbling and he was you yeah. know so into it and uh and it was great and he got to see you and then steve wilson was giving a master class so uh that I, was I, a great that was a great uh, week i remember steve's master class too it was fantastic. fantastic so it's it's quite a program you guys have built and i can uh well each definitely time get, I, endorse each, the what you guys are doing there so yeah. everybody should consider that as a as a if you're if you're at that level that you can uh, Think about going to a place like that. It's it's well, quite commuting the down there has been nothing because it's such an inspiration when I'm there. I'm just <laughs> going, wow, the commute is really short when you consider the inspiration I get from all the students and faculty down there. And you know, I my my kids are going to go to school there. Yeah, I already have one there, so yeah, that's how much I love it. Yeah, I believe in it, it's so. a great school to go to. Well, Dick, I just, you know, as we wrap up tonight, uh, thank you so much for, for coming. I know you were in Manhattan rehearsing. You were gracious enough to <laughs> drive all the way up here. Now you're going back in to do the Vanguard. We really appreciate it. And okay. I figured we'd just close out, if you don't mind. I'm just going to throw some Vanguard names at you and just give me like a one-sentence response to what oh, these... Oh, that uh, might be hard. Or as, as best you can. Okay. That, uh, <laughs> let's start with the... Uh, these are all people that you've had you know, intimate and long associations with. Let's start with the great Joe Lovano. Oh, well, Joe is like, uh, every time he plays, it's always in the moment and always uh, inspirational to me. I've learned so much from the way Joe is, is just enveloping everybody in the club, in the band, as he plays. Mm -hmm. He is, to me, an amazing improviser. How about Gary Smolian? Gary. Gary can play anything he remembers, hears for a moment. I've never heard anybody that can play as much stuff as this guy can play. <laughs> I'm just like so 
intimidated but so like pie-eyed every time <laughs> I hear him play. Jim McNeely. Wow. He's such a compositional improviser, an amazing, uh, he brought our band back from, from Mel. And he also, uh, I'd known Jim since the National Stage Band Camps in 1966, when we were just kids. And so when he, when he joined the band, it was like, wow, we got a great writer and a great pianist and somebody that is incredible at comping. Yeah. It's the best of all worlds. The great Scott Winholt. Wow, Scott always turns my head. He is such an improviser, and always when I feel like my solos was the same one I played, you know, two months ago. He's always never like that. He is always challenging himself and always in the moment. He is very one of the most special improvisers in New York. I feel. Couple of my trombone brothers, Douglas Bravines. Wow, well, Doug. <laughs> Doug was in the band uh, with my brother in Stan Kenton's band. Of course, right. And that's where I first met Douglas there. And then uh, when he joined Thad Mill, I was so happy that, that I could have my, my association with Doug as, as like my brother had. And uh, I've loved Doug for years, and he, he uh, has done so many amazing life transformations. And... He, after Mel left, was a total gift. He mm. came on and he led us through and gave us the band that we have now. I mean, Another one of your co-leaders, John Mosca. John Mosca, my brother. One of your co-leaders with the band. My brother, Doug and John are my co-leaders. And uh, they are, uh, as well as, you know, John is the uncle of all four of my children. He married my sister. I introduced him to my sister. I was patient when he was dating my sister. Uh, one of the greatest jazz trombonists to me and such an unsung hero of this music. Uh, he plays stuff on the trombone that alto players wish they could play. Uh, he's a, an incredible trombonist, just like Doug is incredible in what he does. I, us two have single-handedly kept the Vanguard Band alive, thriving, and continuing. And we've had 50 years and 25 years of just us. Mm -hmm. And it was largely due to the, their uh, selflessness and, and love for the music. Mm -hmm. yeah. And along the lines of the future of the band, Nick Marchione, greatly. Wow, yeah. I'm glad you brought up Nick because Nick is one of the most amazing lead trumpet players. He, as, and as a young man, he already has such depth and such uh, reverence for uh, the music. He has it all memorized. And anytime anybody has a complaint in the band about that trumpet session, I go, they have it. Nick, the lead trumpet player, has it memorized, and he's constantly coming up to John or me or Douglas with new exciting approaches. Or how about this? And can we try this? And you know, that's what we need. We and that to me, Nick is the next beautiful future of this band. That's awesome. Yeah. And just to close it out, Mel Lewis. Well, he was like my second father. You know?
He uh, was probably, while he was here, was very uh, unsung hero. But over the years, everybody has gotten to know Mel. Uh, young kids are asking me about him. And, and uh, Chris Smith's book that just came out about him from the back of the van. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for Mel because he's finally getting people that really understand his depth, <clears throat> you know? And uh, he, he gave us all so much. He was tireless. I mean, he could have, when Thad left, he could have went out as a side man and made it and had a, an amazing career and life and wouldn't have had to put up with uh, all of us. But what, what Brooke Myers said was that when Thad left, Mel got the kids. <laughs> and Mel was like a father to us all. And he was, uh, I can't, you know, everybody in that band uh, that had played with Mel or experienced Mel at some point uh, as a subs or whatever knows how heavy. Uh, I mean, I love John Riley. He's a great drummer. He's one of the most, and we are lucky to have John come in. But it's like that. Have, that'll never be repeated. Mm -hmm. Mel won't either. Yeah. Uh, but we have amazing players. I'll never play like Jerome. But I love Jerome, and I will. And it's the same thing with we all love Mel. That'll always be kept in the music and uh, in our hearts, and especially for future young players to grow in a very mature way mm -hmm. and see something other than, uh, you know, slam bam and, you know, wow and zing and yeah. something other than that. Yeah, greatest greatest big yeah. band drummer ever for my, for uh, my that's money. That's probably one of the, my, my uh, biggest uh, things that I've had happen to me in New York was that. That association, because playing with him not only in a big band but in a small group and recording the, some of the CDs that a lot of us did in the band with Mel in a small group, wow. That was some... When drummers like Alvin Jones and, uh, you know, Buddy Rich and all these guys would come down to Vanguard to check him out. Says it all. Says it all. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Dick, thank you so Mike, much. This has been awesome, so man. You're just you're the best in oh, every way. Yeah. And, uh, I've we had appreciate a great time. You. Thank appreciate you for you having me on and... this program. And it's bone to pick. Yeah. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> it's such our pleasure. Dick, the great Dick Oates. Uh, keep an eye out for all the amazing work that he's doing in the future. Thanks for joining us, uh, and we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.